3: Follow the Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global.
4: The crushing uncertainty of a family not knowing is what drives me most in this case. Carol Thompson's mother, stepfather, and little brother are buried together side by side in a cemetery about 15 miles from the Stevenson's farmhouse. Her uncle Eddie Dowell is interred in his home state, Michigan. During my trip to Ohio, I paid a visit to the cemetery to stand in front of three marble hearts, two larger stones bookending a smaller one in the middle. Billy, Linda, and Billy Jr.'s names etched across the front, with the date of their deaths the same, in my line of work, this is as sobering and distressing as it gets. Three days after the fire, a private memorial service was held for the Stevenson's friends and family. Billy Stevenson and five-year-old Billy Jr.'s caskets were open for viewing. Linda Stevenson's body was so badly burned that the family decided to have hers closed. Carol Thompson had asked a friend to sew a little satin pillow that she could place in her little brother's casket. As she explained to me, there is no way to escape the bizarre thoughts that haunt you after losing your family to homicide.
2: I didn't tell a story for a long time when it first happened. You know, when it happened, I didn't tell it for a while well. Because I thought people would think I was kind of crazy or just slipping a bit. Now, you know, I'm just, I'm young, you know, and I'm dumb, and I've never been around nobody, and I'm scared, you know. And so I walked to the front where the caskets were. Now, my mom's was closed, and I had little Billy's on one end, mom's in the middle, and Steve's on the other end, so that two open and one closed. So I got the little Billy's casket, and I go to toss the pillow in. And when I did, my hand brushed little Bill. And when it hit him, it was like a jolt. And all of a sudden I felt weird and I could see light coming through my pores, like yellow light. Now I'm not, I know, I know, it sounds crazy, but I'm like, what, you know, I, I yank back and I'm like, what the hell? And I'm like, this is freaking crazy. And I don't want to tell anybody else because you know, they might think I'm totally nuts. So then I'm like, well, what will happen if I touch Steve? Well, I get the same thing. So I go over to Steve's casket and I do Steve and I get the same kind of reaction. So then I'm like, oh man, I got to try my mom. So I go to her, cost, her casket, and it's closed, right? And I can't feel it, but I can almost feel it. It's like right there. I can almost, oh, I can't quite get it, you know? Damn it, why can't I get to mom, you know? But I, I knew it was there. I could sense it. It was nope. the weirdest thing ever, ever.
4: Previously on Paper Ghosts.
5: He said, if I'm not home by in the morning, I said, turn the TV on. Lo
6: and behold, I, here's a man that's a two-time convicted bank robber and is out on federal parole. And they're all scared to death of this man.
2: So I pick up the phone, I call Ron, I say, hey Ron, did you hear what happened at mom's house? And he's like, oh my God, Carol, I'm so sorry. Oh my God, oh my God, I heard, I heard. I said, Ron, I, you know, the police are gonna know what time you left last night. So, what time did you leave? Well, I left at 11.30. Immediately, I thought, what? Wait a minute. What?
4: My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and author of 44 true crime books. This is season two of Paper Ghosts Burned. Seasoned investigators rely on instincts they've developed over a period of time from their experience on the ground, talking with and studying people. And as we've learned, criminals, they will do just about anything to stay out of prison. At this point, Detective Cooper and the Sheriff's Department's investigation was in flux. Much of it focused on that mystery man, Dick Weston. And yet, when it came down to it, they still didn't have that one concrete piece of evidence tying Dick directly to the murders. But Cooper had been here before, with other cases. The thing to do? Whatever it takes.
6: On any homicide, if you don't have a smoking gun, for lack of better words, you always go to the funeral because, one, you want to watch people's reactions, and sometimes people don't come up to the casket and will say something. Like, ah, oh, this is what you get, you're a little rotten. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, I mean, it's it's something you really got to watch.
4: So you put a mic on the casket? Oh,
6: yeah. Uh, I've done that on a couple of them. Put a mic down in the casket and sit back there and record Because, I mean, you know, if it's a crime of passion, you might even get them to say, oh, I'm sorry I did this to you. You know, and do it in a low voice so nobody else can hear it. But, The mic's picking it up. Yeah, but no, we was at the funeral. We'll see what the reactions were.
4: Cooper and his team never got what they were hoping for, a funeral confession. Yet, something did stand out to investigators. Where was family friend Ron Thomas? Up until this point, the sheriff's department had spoken to Ron once under the pretense of Dick being their sole killer. Something like, Hey, Ron, can you help us out here? Do you know anything about this guy, Dick Weston? That tone eventually changed. So with Ron returning for his second interview, now with the FBI involved, the conversation was going to be centered on Dick and Ron conspiring to carry out the Stevenson murders. Together. Unlike the first meeting in which Ron stated that an unknown white male was still at the Stevenson's house by the time he left, Ron now admitted to being acquainted with dick weston but said they didn't have a close relationship
6: one thing about that day we showed him a picture of Linda stevenson purse and the man liked to swallow his tongue his body language and how he reacted was just it
4: was like how the fuck did you find that yeah
6: yeah yeah <laughs> you know this this wasn't supposed to happen yeah
4: <laughs> in those fbi reports ron became extremely nervous when agents brought up the handbag found in the Whitewater River. He said he didn't have any idea how the bag could have gotten near his house. Quote, It looks like somebody is trying to set me up. The agent asked the obvious question. If someone had been trying to set you up, why would they toss the bag in the river and hide it? Studying this interview, something became clear to me. He was putting in place the information he needed to cover for himself. That traffic stopped by the Amelia cop, leaving the Stevensons before the fire and murders, and not knowing Dick Weston all that well. Detective Cooper and his team dug into Ron's association with Dick. They knew damn well what he had told the FBI was bullshit. He and Dick were close friends and business partners and had been for years.
6: We find out that Dick worked for Ron at a car lot for a little bit, and that he had been seen at his house several times, and that they had seen each other at a bar up in Brookville. So, I mean, it wasn't like they were glued together. They weren't constantly together, but there was an association there.
4: I asked Cooper where Ron Thomas's name was at this point in the investigation. I mean, why wasn't Ron by then wearing handcuffs? and being perp walked in front of the media. Ron seemed to be up to his eyeballs in this and had just skated by, with no one seemingly interested in going after the guy.
6: He still would not say, nope, don't have anything to do with it. And he threw Dick underneath the bus.
4: Without any hard evidence implicating Ron's involvement, and Ron now pointing a finger at his shady business associate, Cooper's focal point had to remain on Dick Weston. But Cooper knew Dick Weston was dangerous, and he needed to do something quick to get him off the street.
6: We, we sort of started looking at Dick, and come to find out, we found, discovered that Dick had violated his parole violation. He had a parole violation. And we got a hold of his federal parole officer. and explained to him what was going on, and he says, well, yeah. Well, are you going to violate? Well, yeah, I, I can do that
4: such an important maneuver on Cooper's part. Violate Dick's parole. Get him off the street, behind bars. Not only might it make Dick more willing to talk, but the people in town, many of whom Cooper knew had valid, helpful information, would breathe a sigh of relief that this volatile, tough dude who took pleasure in threatening people was in jail and could not hurt them.
6: The parole officer met Dick up in Brookville, and uh, Dick, I think Dick had an idea something was going to happen to him, but he didn't know what. So, a pro officer interviewed him, and his, Dick Weston's coming back into Brookville. He gets to the traffic light in the middle of Brookville and stops at the traffic light, and we took him down. I mean, it, between us and the FBI and all everything, it was just. How did that go? Oh, it was. <laughs> one person in Brookville said, I've never seen so many guns out at one time, you know. So, we took him out. He's by himself, in and, the and middle of town, and we just descend on him like, he, he just, it was just unreal. And so we get him out, we arrest him. We were on the parole violation.
4: What did he say? Did he say anything?
6: No, and he, I don't think he was really surprised. He, he, he was very calm and cool. We took him to the uh, sheriff's office right there in Brookville, and Captain Pinkton and I interviewed him. We questioned him about the homicide. And uh, he said he didn't have anything to do with it, didn't know anything about it. And he was very, very cool, calm, and cold. Numerous homicides I've investigated, I've probably spoken to three psychopaths, and he's one of them. Because you could just look in his eyes and tell, I'll kill you
0: if I get a chance.
2: At Luckylandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW group, void where prohibited by law. 18 plus turns and conditions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The campaign moment podcast from the Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
4: Because he had to remain in lockup under that federal parole violation, there was very little chance Dick Weston was going to be back on the street anytime soon. Dick was the key to the Stevenson murders. That was clear to the sheriff's department at this point. So, as Detective Cooper and the feds began to build a case against Dick on four counts of aggravated murder, their investigative aim stared toward the two women who alibied him. Dick's girlfriend, Drusilla, remained tight-lipped. She maintained that Dick had nothing to do with the murders and they were both at her friend Tonatha's house all night where Drusilla had rented a room. After all, Tonatha had alibied them both. The police were looking to get Tonatha to cooperate with them. Drusilla was living in her house. Tonatha knew Drusilla's comings and goings, and Drusilla was now paying visits to Dick Weston in prison quite often. The sheriff's department decided to bring Tonatha in and put the investigative squeeze on her. She
6: was scared, and I think she realized we took Dick off the streets. I think she realized that if I don't, Fear a way out of this, I'm going to jail too. I'm going to lose my kids. So she gave us a very detailed statement at that point in time.
4: Come to find out, Tanitha Barger was more than just a bystander caught in the middle of a homicide investigation. She found herself in a position where she was in fear not only for her life, but that of her children. Because of that, she agreed to become an FBI informant. From that point on, Tanitha's life seemed to be ripped from the pages of a spy novel. She'd meet with agents for secret rendezvous by a big oak tree off the highway or in the woods, out of sight from any civilization. So you sit down with them, and how are you feeling when you sit down?
5: Really, I couldn't even tell you how I felt because I'd never done nothing like that before in my life. Didn't know how my life was going to be changed. It was a weight off my shoulders to know that I could get it. Talk to them and let them know what happened. I didn't want nobody to know what I was, what I was doing. Cause if they did, I wouldn't have lived till next day.
4: Tanitha was fearful of Dick. She did not want to become murder victim number five. Her friend Lucilla helped ease the tension and convinced Dick that he could trust Tanitha. Once that groundwork was established, Dick told Tanitha details she would never forget. As you can hear in one of her taped statements to police, Tanitha was a wealth of information when it came to what Dick did the night of and after the murders.
5: He uh, said that he had went over to the Stevenson house, and in the meanwhile, when he went in, he had tied Miss Stevenson F.
4: Carol Thompson maintained that her mother, Linda, was tied up on the night she was murdered, though Detective Cooper remains adamant that no such thing ever occurred.
5: said all he was going to do was take the money and like jewelry or whatever that was valuable. And he uh, said when he done that, that uh, these other two guys come in and started shooting
4: by other two guys, Dick meant Billy Stevenson and his brother-in-law, Eddie Dowell. What's interesting here to point out is that Dick's retelling of the events put him in a position where he claimed he had no other option but to retaliate.
5: I don't know for sure how everything happened, but from the way he, talked, he was standing in on one side of the room, and they come in and started firing at him. And he started firing back at him. And he killed her and them too and said that a bullet had uh, went through the wall and
4: hit the little boy. Dick Weston was essentially minimizing the cold-blooded murder of a five-year-old child by shifting the blame onto Eddie and Billy for starting the shootout. As you heard at the end of the last episode, Tonitha said she saw Dick return to her house the morning after the murders wearing a shirt covered in blood.
5: How did he explain having the blood on his shirt? He just said uh, the one guy. I guess it was Mr. Stevenson. Had uh, when he shot him, it didn't faze him. He just kept coming toward him.
7: And then, then after he kept coming toward him, uh, what did he say happened?
5: Uh, he fell into him and uh, got.
7: Mr. Stevenson fell into him. Richard LeBron yeah. Weston.
5: Yeah.
4: Keep in mind that in these tapes you'll sometimes hear the investigator refer to Dick by his legal name, Richard Laverne Weston.
5: When Dick was telling the story about the shootout, did he say who was with
6: him or elaborate on
5: it? No, from the way he was talking, he was the only one that done any of shooting the shooting besides the other two guys. He said he had a twenty-two in one hand and a thirty-eight in the other.
4: The twenty-two and the thirty-eight, both calibers used in the quadruple homicides. Quick note as you hear how the officer asks his next question. Tanatha had already given police this information during their secret meetings. They just now needed her to say it on tape.
7: Okay, subsequently, after uh, Richard Laverne Weston making the statement about how how the robbery and the killings went down, uh, did he not also make some kind of a statement that... uh, he had rearranged the bodies to make it look like there had been two people involved in the shooting? Yes, he did. Would you enlighten me on that?
5: He didn't say right out how he'd done it, but he says uh, they was uh, put in a place to where they think that there'll be two or three in the shootings instead of just one.
4: That question by the investigator produced an interesting response. Because if Toneth's story was true, that would mean Dick used two different caliber weapons himself. But more importantly, it would absolve Ron Thomas of any direct involvement.
7: Okay, did you observe anything else on the 6th?
5: There was a gun, um, the long silver one, 44 and he had uh, two rings in his hand. He pulled out of his pocket and showed to us at the bar.
4: Cooper believed that forty-four caliber weapon was possibly the gun Billy Stevenson was holding at the time of his death a gun from Billy's collection that was, incidentally, missing from the crime scene.
7: Do you recall what kind of jewelry he was showing you, rings and stuff?
5: It was a big cluster, and then there was one small one.
7: Can you describe the ring that was, uh, you were referring to as a cluster for me?
5: Okay, it was something like a dinner ring, only it was larger. And it had about 15, 16 diamonds in the top of it, and it was a silver coin.
4: Among the jewels Dick allegedly had in his possession was a diamond ring worth approximately four to six thousand dollars, which would be worth nearly triple that amount today. Carol Thompson had told Cooper and later showed me photos of a unique, expensive diamond ring that her mother, Linda, always wore. If they were the same, that would mean Dick or somebody he knew took that ring off Linda's hand, either dead or alive. Tonatha said Drusilla was instructed by Dick to hold on to it in case she ever needed the money.
7: Okay, then later on, uh, on July the 8th, the following day, did you observe uh, Richard Laverne Weston with a brown paper bag full of money?
5: He came out to the car and he got a brown paper bag out of the car. But when we come back from picking up the girls, he had money laying on the bar to pay for the truck which
7: was $5,500. Okay, when you returned to the house, you, you saw that he had laid out $5,500. was just cash money? Cash
4: money. It was that cash payment Dick made on his truck just days after the Stevenson murders that initially caught Cooper's attention. Where in the hell had a guy like Dick Weston gotten $5,500 in cash? What's more, Dick wasn't the only person to suddenly come into extra money. Tanatha also revealed that, following Dick's arrest, she accompanied Drusilla to Ron Thomas' house on several occasions. The first, it was to pick up $1,000 and take it to a lawyer in Indianapolis. During the second visit, Tanatha said she witnessed Ron's wife hand Drusilla a brown envelope containing $3,000 in cash. Ron, overseeing the transaction, allegedly asked, "'How long will it take you to get that money to a lawyer?' According to Tanatha, Drusilla went on to launder the money, going to the bank, purchasing a cashier's check in her name, and writing it out to a lawyer in Missouri, except she only sent $2,000. said Drusilla pocketed the rest for herself. Why would Ron Thomas, a good friend of the Stevensons, foot the bill for Dick Weston's lawyer? What stake did Ron have in this? As for the rest of that money stolen from the Stevenson home, depending on which person you speak to, there was upwards of 200000 or as little as 40000 still missing. And based on what the Barger told the officer, they had a good idea what happened to all that money.
5: just says, uh, do you own a shovel? I says, no. He said, well, do you know any neighbors here close to enough that can get a shovel? You can get one off of it. And I says, no, I don't. And uh, he says, well, he says, well, we'll just have to buy one. And he asked if there was a store open that would sell hardware early in the morning. And I told him, yeah, there was one open at 7 o'clock.
4: Tanatha said Dick left early the next morning and returned hours later with a shovel in hand. He gave it to her and said she could use it for um, gardening work. Tanatha then recalled a day when she and Drusilla went out for a drive not too far from where Linda Stevenson's purse was found in the Whitewater River.
5: She took me out through there later on and was pointing it out that that was the road and she got out of the car out there and went up into the wooded area on the right of the road. And she turned real white and pale and she looked back over her right shoulder back into the wooded area. And I asked her on the way out later on about it and she said that was where the money was buried.
4: This area where Tanatha is talking about, it's about a 70-minute drive from the crime scene. Don't forget, in those days before cell phones and cell towers, which could easily pinpoint your exact location, not to mention DNA analysis connecting a suspect directly to a crime scene, this might as well have been in another country.
0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow.
4: The sheriff's department was working under the theory that Dick Weston committed the murder sometime after Carol Thompson made that 1130 p.m. call to her mother. What was still unclear, though, was Ron Thomas's involvement. Did Dick act alone? Were his actions premeditated? Could he have seized on an opportunity he saw while at the Stevenson's that night and returned later on with an accomplice? Detective Cooper was not leaning one way or the other. Still, the crime scene had the feel of two or more shooters as there were two different caliber weapons used and two different heights measured as far as bullet location on the bodies. With reliable information coming in at a fairly good clip, it was becoming more and more obvious how feared Dick Weston was in that Brookville community.
7: Time is 11, 10 a.m. Indiana time. Presenting the room is myself, Captain Lincoln, Sergeant Cooper.
4: Going back to those cassette tapes, I found an interview police conducted with a juvenile source who spent time inside Tanitha's house in the days following the murders. And what is hard to ignore is the inherent fear you can hear in the child's voice while describing what she witnessed in the conversation she had.
8: She had a brown envelope
5: full
7: of hundreds in it. She, I think she hid it under bed and she got it out. Okay, was that uh, while Dick was still there? Yeah. Did you see Dick Weston with a gun in your house?
5: Yeah.
4: The focus of the interview then shifted to interactions the child had with Drusilla once Dick was in prison.
7: When you and Drew were riding around in her truck, did you and her have occasion to talk about anything?
8: No.
7: Just rode around?
8: No. She yelled at me in the
7: What'd she yell at? About the phone. About the telephone? What about the telephone?
8: No. Well, she said that she can't get on it because everybody's on it.
4: The young girl was hogging the phone, talking to her friends, as kids often do. And so with only one landline in the house, no one else could use it. Drusilla was pissed about this. Well,
8: she said she can't talk to the dick on it because everybody's on it.
7: That's the only thing she
8: ever hollered at you now? Mm-hmm. Well, she said if I told her where that money was,
4: she was going to film it. It's difficult to hear but it's worth repeating that the child said, if I told anyone where the money was, Drusilla was going to kill me.
7: She said that if you told where yeah. the money was, well,
8: how would you know where the money well, was? Well, she said it was somewhere on the background road.
4: According to the child, Drusilla told her that the money was somewhere on the background road.
7: Drew told you that she had the money buried?
8: No, not. she didn't say buried She had it on the background road and something.
4: What did the child mean by background road"? It was becoming clear that there was a large sum of money, likely stolen from the Stevenson home, that Dick and Drusilla hid somewhere, so law enforcement could never find it.
7: Well, she said she didn't say anything about being buried. She just mm-hmm. said she had the money. What money was she talking about? I don't know. She told you if you said anything about it, she'd go want she She'd go she
4: Drusilla Morita wasn't playing. She was doing Dick's bidding for him, which, as she told the kid, could include murder if the situation called for it.
6: We knew Drusilla was involved to the point she seen the stolen property, she was involved in burying the stolen property and taking possession of it. We didn't know whether she was involved directly in a homicide or not.
4: Dick became more incensed while in jail as the days passed and the noose tightened. On the phone with Drusilla, he warned, or rather threatened her, specifically about going anywhere near that money. Turns out that background road the juvenile source mentioned went by another name.
6: We knew that they took the money out and buried it. And from what... could tell us from what Drew had told her and Dick, they buried it on what was called Tunnel Road. And we couldn't find a Tunnel Road nowhere. Well, come to find out, the locals up here they call it Tunnel Road because the, the trees are grown over so much that it's always dark when you drive down through there. So, you know, we, we knew it was buried out there on Tunnel Road somewhere.
4: They didn't know exactly where, however. In response, Cooper and the Sheriff's Department devised an extraordinary plan.
6: Well, we started a 24-hour surveillance of Drusilla. And that was interesting. (laughs) At that point in time, we had uh, the FBI and in cooperation with the Indiana State Police, we had an airplane sitting through airport. And we had a pilot sitting there 24-7.
4: On top of that, Cooper's boss had a connection with a local car dealership. So he and Cooper would literally change vehicles every day and follow Drusilla wherever she went with minimal risk of being noticed. Remember, Tanatha had begun working for them. She was also watching Drusilla's every move. When Drew left the house, Tanatha called Cooper and relayed that information.
6: She would get the phone and call us and say, she's leaving at 7 in the morning, or she's leaving in the next 15 minutes. And the minute that would happen, we would get the plane in the air day and night, and we would start a, a surveillance.
4: They needed Drusilla to lead them to the money. But Drusilla was very street smart. She knew they were following her. She had no clue, however, that every time she left the house, a plane was in the air with eyes on her.
6: Well, lo and behold, she went out to tongue road. She got out, walked into the woods, and and the, I don't if it was the agents or the state troopers watched her go over by this tree, and she just sort of walked around and looked and got back in her car and left. Well, we then we knew, okay, we know it's in this area. So uh, we, we kept waiting for her. Hopefully she'd go out and dig it up. Well, she never did do that. She just went by it a couple of times.
4: After figuring out the general location of whatever Drusilla kept visiting in the woods, law enforcement went out and started digging.
6: So we got a metal detector and went out by the the tree and, and went around with the metal detector. Well, it didn't pick nothing up. An FBI agent, I don't know where they got it at or where it came from, but they come back with a military minesweeper. You know, a big one. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, like you use in World War II or sure, the sweep sure. roads for mines. Sure. And we went over there, and they hit that, and boy, that thing just went wild, you know. So we knew something metal was down there. So dug it up, and when we dug it up, there was a um, bag air had Dick Wesson's name on it, had an ID number. Inside was something like $28,000 in cash, a 44 Smith & Wesson, a uh, bunch of jewelry, It was was a treasure trove.
4: Crime scene evidence, Oh, yeah.
6: Oh, yeah. It put Dick Weston right
4: there then. The feds and the sheriff's department went back to Dick. They didn't give away specifics. They simply told him they had evidence. Did he want to say anything at this point? Dick willingly spoke without his lawyer present, but minimized his role, pushing the blame once again on the victim. He said
6: that... Stevenson tried to shoot him, and when Stevenson fell forward, he couldn't shoot him because a gun wouldn't fire. Well, this is a revolver. Revolvers don't malfunction. So that was a little hard for us to believe. So we took the, the 44, all this was sent to the FBI lab, and come to find out the 44 did have a malfunction, that when you're laying on the ground and you're trying to shoot up, it wouldn't fire.
4: So that kind of corroborated what Dick had said.
6: And the position we found Billy's hand in with the pistol, because Billy probably come out of there with his 44 and wanted to defend his family. And he was met by whoever, you know, right there and shot him full of holes. And then on the money, on uh, one of the rappers, on the money found Dick Weston's thumbprint.
4: And so do you take this now to Dick? And say, hey.
6: Oh, yeah. And said, hey, you know, we know you're involved. You're going to be charged. Well, actually, he's he doing it all on Ron Thomas then. Well, if you can get me out of jail, I'm sure I can prove that Ron Thomas did this and he had the money somewhere around Milan. And, you know, I can really help you guys if I can get out of prison. So then he started really throwing Ron at the bus.
4: This, mind you, coming from a guy who claimed the events of that night were a burglary gone wrong. And remember, in his first interview with the FBI, Dick said he was the only one involved. So, why would he change his tune now? Cooper's checkmate move paid off. And it would now be safe to say, from that point on, any loyalty between Dick Weston and Ron Thomas was officially over. In the next episode of paper ghosts.
5: We went to the filling station to get guys and just all at once we were surrounded by every FBI and cop that was. You want know, to basically tell me what you told him? Well, he said that uh, people have a lot of money that uh, this karate guy you know, that's got a black belt karate showed him three pays full
4: of money and that uh, he said He was involved in a hell of a shootout
2: there. I stood and looked at that man that night. I stood and looked at this mass murderer. Talk to him.
4: Paper Ghosts is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett, with script consultant, Matthew Riddle. Audio editing and mixing by Abu Zafar. Thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 442, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Haya.